I want you this morning to picture in your mind something or some place that you have seen or experienced that you would consider as great or majestic. And what comes to my mind when I'm thinking about that is when my wife and I got married, we, we had the opportunity to honeymoon in Estes Park, Colorado. I don't know if you, any of you know where that is. Estes Park is a little north of Denver, about two hours. Uh, it is in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And the, one of the entrances to Rocky Mountain National Park is there. Uh, we had an opportunity to go to uh, a cabin, just kind of take a break for about 10 days. And it was a beautiful experience. A couple times we had the opportunity to actually go into the park. Um, one of the unique things about Estes Park is that the elk roam freely. You cannot hunt them up there. Uh, it is illegal because they are in a state park, and so they take full advantage of that. They cross the roads. They actually will go in down into the town and cause traffic delays as they just walk around and roam freely uh, around the park. But what is majestic about that park is you can go up into the mountains, and you can look down on the valley below. I remember one time that we did go up there and, and we stopped along a certain section of the road to look out and you could just see the vast beauty of the Rocky Mountains below. Uh, from the, the peaks where there's still snow on them to some of the valleys where there was a little bit of snow but you could see some green uh, a little bit even though it was still December. Um, it was just breathtaking just to stand there and for a guy who has a fear of heights, I stood back a little bit. Um, to see the view before me and just to, to consider it as majestic or great and just picture in my mind what it'd be like to walk through there and just to stand there to observe the beauty. What it must have been like some two, three hundred years ago when the land was un, uh, not uh, plowed and everything, just to see the beauty that was before us. And perhaps you can think of your mind of, of other situations where you've, you've stood before something or someone and, and you've just seen greatness or majesty and just appreciate that so much well the greatness of this earth and the the greatness of our country in its different national parks and and different um, sites is in no way a comparison to the greatness of our high priest jesus christ and the author of this of the hebrews this morning from this passage of scripture wants us to see how great he is so my challenge to you this morning as we consider these verses is to see the greatness of Christ in his ministry as our high priest. We've been on this topic for several weeks now and the author continues his, his onward progression on what Christ's ministry as high priest means. And I, want us, I want us to see three statements that he makes. And again, he's, he's going to argue logically to get our attention to see how important and how great Christ is. So there's three statements I want us to see of how great Christ is. And, and the first statement is maybe a little bit generic for you, but it's, it's this, the tabernacle or the temple had many tools to worship God. Verse 1, that indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. He's building off of, of his previous discussion of the new covenant. That's the way he uses that phrase, then indeed. He's going back to comparing the new covenant and the old covenant. And he points back that the tabernacle was the part of the first covenant. It had uh, divine ordinances and it was a place of worship. There was nothing wrong with it. It was divinely ordained. We can go back to Exodus, right? And we can see the progression of, of 
or of uh, worship that went on. And so it was a place of worship and ministry to the Lord. And, and, and the many instruments of worship in the tabernacle were designed to direct worship to God. You can go back to Exodus 25, chapter 25 to chapter 39, and see all of the instruments that were used. Some of them are listed here. Verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, or the first section, which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So you have this, this description of what the outer part of the tabernacle was, where, where the, the, the altar, the lampstand, the table, the showbread, the offerings were. Then you move on to the, the inner part, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna and Arad's rod that budded it and the tab- tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So he's briefly describing some of the key elements of worship in the tabernacle, the key instruments that were used. And he does so to remind us as readers and to remind his readers who were mostly Jewish to think back on what was in the tabernacle. What was it? It was just instruments. It was the, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the, the altars. It was the veil that separated man from God that the high priest could only enter once a year. Physical things that represented worship to God. But yet, that's not the purpose of his discussion. That's why he says at the end of verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's basically saying we don't have much, we're, this is not the point. We're not going to go into detail on what these meant. That's not our, that's not our point of discussion. The, the main point is that the tabernacle facilitated worship to God. And that was valid for that time period. So this is in no way a degradation of the tabernacle. It's just an affirmation that what went on in the tabernacle was right and before God. It was divinely ordained. There was nothing in it that was lacking. It was sufficient for the time. And so that was, that was the process of worship back during the Old Testament. And I want us to think about this question as we think about a point of application. You say, Pastor, well, I can draw any application out from these few verses. But I want us to think, do you see the Old Testament as valuable to your faith? Because that's what the author of Hebrews goes back to, Right? He goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the, the instruments as, as boring as they might be, right? Let's be honest with ourselves. Numbers, Leviticus, not very exciting reading, <laughs> okay? Some of you mentioned, well, what's this, you know, it's walking through some of those books and just this person did this and then this person made that. <laughs> so what's that all there for? It's, it's for our faith, right? The Old Testament serves for the benefit of our faith. Yet many Christians just kind of toss it aside. They say, no, we're in the New Testament times now, and we just need to focus on that. Well, without the Old Testament, we don't have the New. Right? And the author of Hebrews brings that up, as he has continually done, that the Old Testament has a place for our faith. It's in the Old Testament that we find encouragement when we're facing sorrow and struggle. Where do you go when you face sorrow and struggle in life in the Old Testament? I go to the Psalms, right? The Psalms. Where, where the, the author of the Psalms, beyond David, gets down and dirty sometimes. 
And it shows how ugly life is and how he's struggling with it, yet his hope is in God. Where do we go when we are looking for wisdom and for, for counsel in facing different issues? Proverbs. Wisdom. Where do we go for when we're thinking about future events and think about what God will do in the future? The prophets. Every part of the Old Testament has value to our faith. So do we see it as valuable or do we are just focusing on the New Testament? The author of Hebrews heavily relies upon the Old Testament as an implication for our faith and so should we. Second statement that he makes is, again, building his argument. That's what he's doing. He's arguing logically. Second statement that he makes is, yet the ministry of the tabernacle was limited. So it was good. It was divinely ordained. God said, spoken into existence, if you will. But it was limited. It was limited. Verse 7, or verse 6, excuse me. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went in the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself before the people's sins committed in ignorance. He's saying a few things here, and that number one, there was limited access to God. So he's walking through what happened, you know, just in a daily administration of the tabernacle. The priests went into the first part, you know, they went to the altar, they made the sacrifices, they, they took part in the lighting of the lampstand and all those different things that the Old Testament talks about. They went about their duties. That's the word performing. They went about their duties as, as the law commanded, right? That's, that's how they worshipped. Yet the high priest was the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies, and that was once a year. Holy of Holies, resent, uh, most holy of all, as it describes it here in verse 3, was where God was. It's the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's the mercy seat. He could only go in there once a year. He offered sacrifices for his sins and for the unintentional sins of the people. You go back to Exodus chapter 30 and verse 10 and see God's command to Aaron about entering once a year to offer that one day of atonement sacrifice. So it was limited access to God. Think about that for a second. You're, you're, you're a Jew living during, let's say, the time of David. And the tabernacle still... Coming up, you go once a year on the Day of Atonement to watch the high priest go into the second part of the tabernacle, which you are not allowed to go into. And so all you can do is stand out and watch, and maybe he comes out alive, maybe he doesn't. There was that possibility. And he walks behind the veil, and he, and he offers the blood of the sacrifice on the altar as he is commanded to, and he comes out and says, your sins are forgiven. And that's it. That's all you hear from God. Your sins are forgiven. And guess what? You've got to go home, live your life out, and then next year what happens? You do the same thing again. So this limited access to God was part of the ministry of the tabernacle. Notice also with me that the sacrifices and offerings of the tabernacle or the temple were not sufficient to access God. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So the author kind of takes a break a little bit here and adds his own note, if you will, his footnote into this discussion. And he notes that the Holy Spirit reveals 
that these methods were insufficient. But they could not be revealed as insufficient because the tabernacle still had a purpose to be fulfilled. So the Holy Spirit reveals that the, the tabernacle, the way into the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies, was not revealed. How, how do we get to God? How do we get full access to God? Well, it couldn't be revealed because the first tabernacle was still standing. Its purpose had to still be fulfilled. There was something still better to come. And what the high priest did once a year was still not sufficient for complete access to God. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. What does this mean? Verse 9, everything was symbolic. It was a picture, a representation. And it could not perfect anyone who participated in them. The word symbolic here means to serve as a model or example, pointing beyond itself for later realization. So in other words, it's a, it's a sample, it's an example of something better to come. Right? And it could not make anyone perfect. The word perfect means to be complete without anything lacking. Paul uses this term in Galatians 3.21 when he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, for if a law that had been given could give life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. And the fact that it wasn't, could not give life, it could not perfect. So the things of the tabernacle, the temple, were external and awaited a new order to come and replace them. That's the word reformation. It was, it was, it was a process of, the word reformation means to, a process leading to a new order, viewed as something yet to be realized. So it looks forward to something still coming, knowing that it is only a symbolic representation of what it is to come. Because the law was only concerned with the outside, right? Look, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances. If you want to define a law, it was, it was about the outside, the external. You, you came and you brought your sacrifice and your sins were forgiven. All of that was on the outside, right? You offered your sacrifice. You came and, and brought it and watched it being slaughtered in front, in front of you. And the blood spilt and the, the offering made. And you knew that the offering was acceptable. Yet you had to go back time and time again to do it. You had to go through your ritualistic washings and eating the right foods. And that was all external stuff. It never cleansed on the inside. That's why you need the new covenant, which he discussed in chapter 8. All of that stuff was just an outward example of what was yet to come, which was better. And so the author highlights that the temple was still limited and was waiting for something better. So can I ask you a question this morning as we, we walk through this argument that the author of Hebrews makes? Do you see why something better was needed for us to have access to God? The tabernacle couldn't be sufficient enough. You know, if we had the tabernacle today in our, in our worship uh, services, it wasn't sufficient and still isn't sufficient. 
Even, even the Jews today who are seeking to worship at the Temple Mount, they're looking for a temple. They're looking for a, a process of worship that is in accordance with the law. The law cannot save. The ordinances could not save. The temple could not save. There was still something better to come. And it was needed. Yes, the, the tabernacle was good. and Yes, the tabernacle was, was sufficient for the time. But something better was still on the way. And, and let me just kind of pause as a sub-point of this. Aren't you thankful that God has always better things in store for us? That, that what he had back in the Old Testament was sufficient for that time, was sufficient for them, but there's still something was better, that was better in store? Aren't you glad you have a God who acts that way? who works out that way. There's always something better down the road. And here it is, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is his next argument, his last statement, that Jesus surpassed what the tabernacle could accomplish in its worship. He notes several things, starting in verse 11, about Christ. And the first one is that Christ came with better things and a better tabernacle. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle that not made with hands, that is not of this creation. The phrase there, good things to come, refers to the blessings and promises that Christ grants through his work as high priest. The Old Testament high priest couldn't grant that, right? All he could do was, was, was come and, and fulfill the, the responsibilities of the law, right? I mean, going through the offerings and the sacrifices. That's all he could do. He couldn't promise anything, he couldn't bring better things along with him and grant promises and such. Only Christ can do that. Only Jesus can come in the place of a high priest and perform the duties, but also promise better things. Not only does he, he bring good things with him, but he brings a better tabernacle. And again, this is, this is kind of foreign to our thinking. Maybe you could use the word worship center or worship service. But Christ's worship center is greater. It's more perfect, and it's not of this world. It's not limited to a tent. It's not set around by boundaries as the law prescribed, but is the direct opposite of the, of the Old Testament tabernacle and the high priest is Christ's tabernacle. It's not made with hands. It's not of this world. It's different. It's divinely constructed. And even though the tabernacle was divinely ordained, this tabernacle that Christ has, this perfect worship center, is divinely constructed. Notice also with me that the author notes that Christ entered the holy place with his own blood. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Well, what did the high priest do every year? He brought blood in to the Holy of Holies to offer it. That was the way they did it, right? And, and picture this with me just for a second. If you're in the priesthood, you saw this happen every day. Thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. I don't know about you. I've got a weak stomach. I don't know how much blood I can handle. I don't know about you. You probably are all stronger than me. I know Nancy is because she's a nurse. Um, but, but think about that. Blood just flowing from animals day after day after day. That's how forgiveness was attained. And the priests continually brought that blood time and time again to be offered. 
and, and, and use those sacrifices to gain access and forgiveness to God, but Christ comes with His own blood. No high priest does this. You don't look back and see Aaron cutting himself and offering his blood to God. No, he was supposed to bring blood from bulls and calves to do that. And by using his own blood, Christ exclusively gained access to the most holy place. He did it by himself with his own blood, not someone else's. And that makes him a uniquely qualified as high priest. But in doing so, notice what the author also highlights. He highlights at the end of verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. You'll see this going back and forth through the times that we've talked about the high priest as the author of Hebrews has written about him. He continually goes back and shows how Christ is greater through different words, through different phrases, and here no less. In entering the most holy place with his own blood, Christ procured the eternal redemption that the Old Testament high priest could not by going in once a year. What was, what was, the, what was the redemption that the Old Testament high priest procured on the Day of Atonement? How long did it last? Once. And then the next year it had to be done again, and again, and again. But when Christ went into the Holy of Holies, offering Himself through sacrifice on the cross, He obtained eternal redemption. What does the word redemption mean? It means to experience being liberated from an impressive situation. Christ obtained for us eternal redemption. Not momentary redemption. Not partial redemption. Eternal redemption. He paid the price through his own blood. Which leads me to just to, just to pause just for a minute to ask us the question this morning. Are you thankful that you have an eternal redemption? That, that you do not have to go back time and time again, offer sacrifices through, through uh, priests to obtain redemption? That you don't have to go to, to a priest or a pastor today to confess your sins and plead with, with him to ask God for redemption. You can have it today through Christ. Aren't you thankful that you have eternal redemption? That's something that never ends. It's eternal. It goes on forever. We don't need to do anything to repay God for that or earn that redemption. It's once saved, always saved. It's eternal redemption. And that's, that's a message, quite frankly, we can share with others, right? We're, we're coming up upon Advent season, Christmas. People are celebrating, uh, gift-giving, and, and all those different things. Isn't that a great opportunity to show that the greatest gift of all brought eternal redemption so that you and I do not have to earn our way to God anymore? He procured, He obtained eternal redemption for you and for me. Notice also that his sacrifice frees people to serve God unburdened. Verse 13, he kind of he gets into a question and, and an answer here. For the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? To serve the living God. 
Notice he, he argues here from a lesser to a greater position. In logic, uh, this is what he's using, lesser to the greater. So the lesser points to a greater reality, and the greater overshadows the lesser. What is the lesser here? The lesser is that the, that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes and all those different sacrifices were sufficient. They did cause cleansing. They did sanctify. What does the word sanctify mean? It means to eliminate that which is incompatible with holiness. So those Old Testament sacrifices were sufficient to eliminate the external detriments to holiness, but they could not satisfy the internal requirements. Right? It was all external. It was all showing, yes, I want my sins to be forgiven, but what has to change is inside, and these sacrifices can't do it. These sacrifices are insufficient, but yet they could sanctify the flesh. They could purify the outside. And so if that was reality, and it was, how much more does the blood of Christ cleanse us internally? Notice what he says. How much more shall the blood of Christ, okay, pointing to his sacrifice, who through the eternal Spirit, okay, the Holy Spirit involving himself in the process, offered himself without spot. The word without spot means without blemish. Okay, following the pattern of the law, the lamb was supposed to be offered without spot for a sacrifice to God. Cleanse your conscience. So we're not talking about outside. We're talking about inside. Cleaning our conscience up. Making sure that we are right on the inside from dead works to serve the living God. The author points out that Christ, guided by the Spirit, offered himself perfectly to God, thereby freeing all who follow him from the internal burden of conscience and works, so that service may be rendered and unhindered to the living God. You know, the works of the law were dead. They, they had no benefit. They could purify on the outside, but that was it. What had to happen was internal transformation, and that was not possible through the law. So someone greater had to come to offer himself to clean our conscience up. To make sure that it was free from guilt once for all so that we could serve God perpetually. Zechariah prophesies about this. If you remember the Christmas story, at the end of Zechariah's being released from being mute, what does he say in his prophecy? He says that Luke 1, 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. That's what Christ did. He allowed our conscience to be cleaned up, to not be that guilty conscience as we all talk about, to be free from guilt so that we may serve God forever. That's what Christ did. He, he offered Himself to, so that we may serve God unburdened. We don't have to worry about, well, what about that thing that I committed yesterday? Is that going to cause me to be not in favor with God? Aren't you thankful that, that your past does not affect your relationship with God now? Many of us in this room have, have some, some difficult things in our past, right? Some awful things in our past, some troublesome things in our past, but that does not count with God if you're a believer in Christ. And I don't know about you, but I praise God for that. That, that, that my past does not affect my relationship with God. He views me as being right with God. 
And even though I've got to repent and and confess and, and live in righteousness with Him, He still does not count that to my account. And I'm thankful that we have a God who used Christ to cleanse our conscience so that we may serve Him unburdened. And that leads me to ask you a question this morning when we think about this. Do you see how Christ is the great and more perfect high priest? That what He did was better than anything that the temple or the tabernacle could afford? That the worship system of the Old Testament, as divinely ordained as it was, was insufficient? So someone better, someone greater had to come along to make us perfect, not externally, but internally. That's why Christ came. That's why He came to be our high priest. is because He is greater. He is more perfect. He is what God ordained for us to be in a perpetual right relationship with Him. And that leads me to ask also, as you, as you think about this just for a minute, are you thankful to God for what Christ has done for you as, as our high priest? Again, we're coming upon Advent, Christmas season. And, and our minds and our hearts can get so burdened down with the gift giving and the list that we need to create and the, 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 the food we need to have for people to come over. But yet, this is about Christ. This is about what He has come to do. And even much more so as our high priest. So can we see this Christmas season not only a baby born in Bethlehem, but a high priest who has come to make us perfect internally with God? Think about that as we go through the Christmas season. That what, who was born in the baby in the Bethlehem was the Son of God, the perfect high priest. Come to fulfill every part of the law. The first several words of America the Beautiful say this, O beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. While there's truly greatness around us, we, we live up here amongst it, here in I Falls. Beautiful. There's nothing greater that outshines our high priest. I think we've seen that through these three statements. The tabernacle was, was good. It had many tools to worship God. There were things in place that were divinely ordained, yet it was limited. The high priest could enter once a year. Christ did it once for all. And his ministry surpassed what the temple or the tabernacle could accomplish. He is the perfect high priest. He fulfilled all the requirements. He met the obligations so that you and I could be cleaned up internally to serve the living God. So this week, as we get to another busy one, May we all remember our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and tell our community not only that he came, but he came to save them.